The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good morning. It's lovely to be here on uh, kind of a, a summer day uh, in the middle of a season where, where I think we're all grateful to have the sun and maybe a little bit too much. Hopefully the Dharma talk today will be uh, on the sunny side, but not too much. One of the things that I really appreciate about the tradition that we follow uh, in this group, the 2,500-year-old tradition of the teachings of the man that we call the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, that these teachings are given with the spirit of ehipasiko, which is give it a try, see if it works. It's not about what has to be believed or what ought to be believed, but it really is about ways that we have experienced and we share those ways and the ways apply to leading life, leading the um, tradition of family, the opportunity of making a livelihood, uh, dealing with the vicissitudes of life. And how we do that is inspired by the teachings. And so I just wanted to begin with this idea of ehipasiko, if I say something that may be helpful or interesting, please investigate it yourself. See if it works in your life. And if I say anything that is jarring or in some way inharmonious for you, just leave it. Lightly let it go. So I want to start with um, word description of an experience that I had. And this is in the 2,500-year-old tradition. When the man we call the Buddha began his teachings, he um, at first was perplexed and wasn't sure that he would really want to take it on with the uh, thought of how people may react negatively or not of interest. And then, to begin with, he found five people that he knew very well that he had been associated with for a number of years. And they'd had lots of experiences together. And he began his teachings with these five. And so I think in the beginning, it's good to have uh, a group that has shared common experience and so I just have appreciated so much over the years. I've been associated with this group about 16 years. And it's been so beneficial to me to be associated with people whose experiences are similar and resonate for me. So here's one that I'm going to share for you. It's an experience of being out in the environment in the Lake District in England. In the Lake District is a very interesting geological formation in the north of England. It's kind of on the Scottish border. 
and on the western side near the Isle of Man. And it's almost, uh, or it's likened to a wheel where the hub of the wheel is in the center and then there are valleys that radiate out and there are eight valleys that radiate out from the hub. The hub is called Scawfell Pikes and it's the highest, uh, call it mountain, in England. It's about 3,500 feet high and it sounds quite short but when you're there and you're climbing on it, it's huge. It's the valleys uh, start really pretty much at sea level and they go up rocky slopes up to the top of the center of this wheel on Scoffell Pikes. And so one day, uh, working for the Outward Bound School at Eskdale, which is one of the valleys, one of the eight, I was responsible for going out to a, a distant hut and finding a group of kids and helping them get adjusted to the environment. And it turned out it was a very stormy day. The wind was blowing really hard and rain was coming down and it was quite a challenge to be walking at all. And I came to the kind of last mile and a half of this walk feeling pretty changed by the experience, you know, what it's like when you're out in the wind and the rain and it's very, very strong. It seems overpowering. And it turned out that the last mile and a half was uphill, up one of these rocky slopes. And fortunately, totally uh, unconnected with anything I had anything to do with, the wind was at my back. And I had the experience of putting my hands out to the side and using them to sort of guide the wind and lightly moving my feet up the rocks and practically being blown up the hill by the wind. And it was a, a marvelous experience. It was one of those experiences where when it was over, I just I felt um, so immersed in something that was huge and beneficial and, and really um, uh, unexplainable. Just, just part of a nature that, and in this nature, is, well, there was something that just was so wonderful for me. So that's the image. <clears throat> And as I continued my life, I found that uh, there were many other kinds of storms that came and went. When I was first associated with the Insight Meditation Group, uh, it was when we were meeting over on College Avenue in Palo Alto at the Friends Meeting House. And it was a small group of people, much smaller than this today. And the uh, the thought was um, when I first got involved with the group, I was feeling like I was in this storm, but instead of the storm being at my back, it was coming from all directions, and I didn't know how to deal with it. At the time, I had uh, two major 
changes in my life. One was that my kids had become of college age and were moving out of the family. And so that was a big change. And then the other was that my wife of 25 years had just died of breast cancer. And we had been struggling with healing and not healing and hoping and not hoping and up and down for the last seven years. And so the experience was uh, when um, I came first, the Insight Meditation Center, it was that nothing made sense, that what I had believed in and uh, worked for and had thought that I had achieved was really uh, meaningless in the face of where I was at the time. And so uh, what brought me here was uh, a little notice in the Palo, Palo Alto Weekly that said uh, there's a discussion group that meets over on College Avenue on Monday nights, uh, and they're reading this book by Pema Chodron called When Things Fall Apart. And that could not be a better description for what I felt. <laughs> there was not a thing that was together in my life. And I showed up for the book group, and on the way out from the book group, I was thinking, oh, I, I might come back next week. And then I looked in the kind of the uh, main room of the um, friends' meeting house, and here was this group. People were sitting. And I thought, oh my gosh. How can you sit in the midst of all of these forces and changes? And But something captured me. There was a sense of peace and a sense of um, openness. And so I began sitting, not really knowing why. And back in those days, we really didn't talk to each other much. You, you kind of came and sat and then... Everybody got up and went home, and uh, that was about it. But fortunately, there was uh, once a week we had a potluck, and uh, when we had this potluck, we could talk to each other, and we did. And, and so it was my way of finding out who these people were and why they sat and what this sitting practice resulted in. And so it was a, a gift unbeckoned. It was something that had molded me and changed me and has brought so much into my life. I can't express it. Uh, the privilege of being with people who intentionally want to awaken it's such a privilege. And it's so inspiring. Not to influence or create anything in particular. Gill famously has said that meditation is the only thing in our lives that we can do when we're not trying to influence something. It's not about creating some result or effect. It's simply about being present for what is and trusting that 
by being present, we know what to do. We know how to respond and we can be intentional in our living. So I'd like to read a little bit of a poem by Rilke. It's called The Man Watching the Storm Approaching. He wrote it at a time in his life where the storm was raging. He was uh, living in Austria, a German citizen, and it was 1915 when the Great War was raging and things had not gone well, even though they had appeared to be glorious in the beginning. Uh, there were reversals. And by 19, the end of 1915, things weren't looking good. And at age 40, Rilke received in the mail a notice that he had to report for military duty. And he was a poet. And he had a tender heart. And he had written poetry about how we must... Um, be present for each other in a, in a way of compassion. We must appreciate the struggles and the challenges that we all have and be present and just be open to these. And here he was faced with something in his life that was very concrete. We have a date and a place. You must show up. You will be given a uniform and you will begin your military service. And in his heart, he knew that that was impossible. But at the time, there was no such thing as conscientious objectors or uh, ways of doing alternative service. And he was 40 years old, and he had a wife and a couple of kids. And he wrote this poem. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming and I hear the far-off fields say things I can't bear without a friend, I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shape, drives on across the woods and across time and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape like a line in the psalm book is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like cords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who 
so often simply declined to fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. The man who hears the storm approaching. A poem that, to me, speaks so clearly of a real-world experience of applying the first three of the noble truths. In our 2,500-year-old tradition, we know that the first thing that the Buddha taught to those five ascetics that he had spent years with searching and seeking were the noble truths. He said, these I have experienced, this I know from my experience, that in our life, in this life, in this world, we will experience unsatisfactoriness. We will experience hoping for change, hoping for more. We will know that. And there's a cure for this unsatisfactoriness. There's a way of dealing with something that just feels impossible, just feels beyond what we wish. And what is that way? The third noble truth sounds so simple, is so hard. Just let go. Just simply let the forces, the large, implacable, intractable forces blow. Just let them blow. Don't resist. Don't tell stories about what they are and how you've defeated them in the past or how you'll defeat them in the future, that you're a winner or that you're a loser. Either way, we have missed the point. It's not about winning or losing. It's about appreciating ever greater forces in our lives and letting go. And in that letting go, we will know two things. We will know wisdom. We will know how to proceed. The wisdom will give us a sense of what is next, how to move forward, how to take action, how to deal in the real world with something that is huge. So we will have wisdom and we will have compassion. We will understand that this is the case for all life and that appreciating all life gives us the opportunity of loving ourselves. As we appreciate all life, we really understand what the picture is here and that all that is intended for us is that we open to this love and this wisdom 
and we deal with whatever comes to us intentionally. So the man watching the storm approaching to me uh, is a key to the storms that I've felt in my life. Certainly the storm of cancer seemed intractable for years. And it was not anything to be won even though we had hope and we had dreams that this would finally be surmounted, but it wasn't. So what I'd like to do is ask each of us to just pause in our lives, just to... Here we are, July 3rd. We're kind of beyond the solstice. The days are starting to get shorter. We have kind of the season that traditionally is associated with abundance, the bringing in, uh, the growing and the bringing in of harvest. So this is an abundant time of year. So... uh, let us remember that the year is not always sunny and that the harvest is not always the next thing to reap. Let us remember that there are storms blowing and that these storms can be just as we choose. It's not about benevolence. It's not about Uh, opportunity. It's not about winning or losing. It's just storms. So let's just pause at this really auspicious time and notice what comes up for you when I say watching for the storm. we can be sure that there will be storms ahead. And in watching for the storm, what storms occur to you? What are the storms that seem small, that are inconsequential, and what are the storms that are really so big that there's no affecting the outcome. The outcome will happen and we are left simply to choose our response. And as we're thinking about a storm or two that may be brewing or that we're in the midst of right now. Let us remember the three noble truths. Storms happen. Just like the sun, storms come and go. And there's a way of dealing with storms. 
the skillful way of dealing with storms is to let go of the outcome. To notice it's very human for us to wish for outcomes. To notice what we wish for. It's not that we need to be wishless or hopeless. Wishing and hoping and looking for conclusions is what we do as human beings. That's what's been a hallmark of our progress over years and generations and millennia. So the longing and the hoping is not the problem. The problem is when we cling to these longings and hopings. So the third noble truth then is in the midst of the storms, how can we be neutral about outcomes? Let us find the peace of mind, the centeredness that is associated with being neutral no matter where the storms come from or what their nature is so that we may choose our path ahead. We may be intentional in our living. So I have a, maybe uh, you'd call it a uh, tale to tell upon myself. I wasn't going to tell tales on myself, but I was inspired by reading uh, Natalie Goldberg's book called Awakening in America. It's a wonderful book. It's an autobiography of this writer's life. And... She's a Zen practitioner of many years and really um, a a gifted writer who has no axes to grind. She has really embraced Ahi Pasako. Let me tell you about my experience. Try it out. If it works, fine. So in reading this book, Awakening Awakening in America, she said... Beneath my calm exterior, my sweet facade, I am ruthless. (laughs) (laughs) And then she told this story on herself. Early in her days of looking for answers, she ended up at the Lama Foundation in New Mexico and was introduced to meditation. And it really caught her. It was like, wow, this is like the first thing that really has kind of helped me settle all of the forces that have been going in my life. She was raised by a very traditional Jewish family and had lived in Brooklyn and moved uh, from Brooklyn to Fairfield, Minnesota, which was like going from the sublime to the ridiculous Fairfield being almost the opposite of Brooklyn, if you can imagine. And somehow she got to the Lama Foundation. It's a very interesting story how she got there. Found out about meditation and 
then when it came time to move to her next stage of life, she stole her Zafu. And she admits it in this book, and she still has it. She hasn't given it back. (laughs) And I think those of us who are practitioners understand how you could be so attached to that first Zafu. You You just don't want to be without that first Zafu. So she stole it, and that's what she was saying. Beneath this facade, I'm ruthless. (laughs) So the story I wanted to share about me is about one night I awakened at about 2 o'clock in the morning and realized that a raccoon had found its way through my cat door at my house and had followed the cat's scent, I guess, over to the cat dish and was out there chomping away on the cat food. And so there was just something about having a raccoon in the house. I I didn't want more raccoons. I thought if I let this one raccoon get away with it. So I found the only object that I could find to deal with this uh, that was at hand, and it was a Swiffer, you know, the Swiffer that you use on the floor? (laughs) So (laughs) here I am, poking at this raccoon with this Swiffer, trying to get him out the door. (laughs) And unfortunately, the raccoon didn't retrace his steps. He kind of got lost in a side path and ended up climbing in, I have a sunroom where there's a beam going up windows and then windows across the ceiling and the beam continues across the ceiling. And so the raccoon went up the beam and came across the ceiling. I had no idea that a raccoon could cling upside down like a, like a possum. And here he was hanging upside down. <laughs> and I'm poking him with this Swiffer. <laughs> and so finally, he let go and came down. And I had, by that time, opened the nearest door that I could find. And he found his way to the door and left. And it took me about an hour to just kind of settle the adrenaline. I mean, it it was combat as far as I was concerned. (laughs) I was ready for whatever could come, you know. I was going to take on the hordes. And uh, this was survival. I mean, I (laughs) I was that gripped. And I don't know why I was that gripped. I mean, you know, raccoons are fairly pleasant animals. I'm not sure you'd want to get too close to one. Swiffer is about as close as I wanted to get. But uh, it, it just astounded me how this reaction had taken me over. And I, I was not intentional. I was not at choice. There was not a shred of peace of mind as I was dealing with this raccoon. And so it was a a clear lesson for me in how the mind that I'm dealing with the world, that allows me to deal with the world, is ruthless. There's no doubt about it. There's a part of my mind that is ruthless that would, in a moment, steal a Zafu (laughs) or whatever. 
And I put it into a context, you know, that the fact that we're all sitting here in this room really owes to ancestors that we all have had that were able to take on whatever life brought and were survivors and did survive and did make sure that they got to the next generation. And so in our day, the challenges are pretty subtle. You know, it's our challenge is when we really pause and notice, our challenge is in our minds. It's at the level of thought. What thoughts do we hold? What do we cling to in our thoughts? Are we clinging to thoughts that we picked up in childhood and are unable to let go of? Are we clinging to images and ways of seeing things and ways of doing things that really are outmoded, that are obsolete? Back generations and millennia ago, we were dealing with lions and tigers and bears, and we had to survive in a pretty tough environment. And that's what our brains are equipped for. Thank goodness that 2,500 years ago, somebody noticed this and said, we don't have to be at the discretion or we don't have to be pushed by all of these forces to make certain responses. When the Buddha was teaching, one of the major forces that he had to deal with was uh, the idea of caste that there is no way that you can avoid the life dictated by your origin, uh, your parents, your birth, your place of birth, that those conditions dictate absolutely where you can go in your life. And his insight was to say, You know, this is a storm. Yes, we are in that kind of a storm. But how we respond to that storm is at our discretion. We can become intentional in the midst of the storm. And in terms of the uh, four castes, his uh, advice was, yes, notice that this is present, that this is the way that most people believe, but you personally do not have to believe that way. In fact, you can have freedom to be completely at peace and fulfilled in this life. And so it's not about an endless series of beginnings and returnings. Uh, The turning of the Dharma wheel happens in our thoughts, and it happens moment by moment. It doesn't mean that generation after generation is needed to free ourselves. And that was revolutionary at the time, for people to realize that no matter where they were born or of whom they were born, that they could live a life of freedom and of discretion. So the three noble truths are the key that unlock that that allow us to see that these storms can blow and they can have 
a shape-shifting quality. It feels as though they want to change our shapes. But how we respond is at our discretion. So the fourth noble truth, as we all know, is uh, the Eightfold Path, steps that can be taken, specific actions that we can take to condition ourselves so that when the storm hits, we have our tools ready. We, we have everything going for us. The storm may be overwhelming. We may have something that's intractable, like cancer, like violence, solving uh, disagreements between people using violence, Uh, thinking things are always the way that we've always thought. These forces can seem intractable, and yet using a conditioning approach, practice, sitting on the cushion, noticing what arises, that this, in the long run, can free us so that we can choose in every storm how we respond. So what changes, I think, is very interesting because modern psychology and neurology and neurological science are really starting to tell us what is behind this 2,500-year-old wisdom. How does the brain work? I know from my experience in dealing with crisis response, I've been uh, privileged to work with this organization called CARA for the last 12 years providing crisis response. And it's meant that I come to groups where they have had a tragedy, the result of something, a force, a storm has blown through and they've had a loss or a tragedy. And it's about kind of collecting the pieces and realizing that there are ways to move forward and being more conscious about what has happened so that we can move forward. And it's been so clear to me how in the aftermath of storms, of losses and tragedies and crises, we can abandon our freedom. The brain operates using what they call heuristics, kind of uh, quick and easy algorithms. Input equals something or other determines an output. And so these heuristics are what we fall back on when we're afraid or confused or upset. And so when we've had a tragedy, like uh, things that are unimaginable, a, a young teenager, seemingly happy, chooses to die in front of a railroad train. Something absolutely unexplainable, intractable, Something changes in our mind. And so to move forward, uh, the first response is maybe not the most healthy response because it's overlaying with this, this fear or confusion. 
And so thank goodness in this work that I've had the opportunity to have a sitting practice and know that behind the immediate responses and the forces that seem intractable is this opportunity to have peace of mind and freedom of choice. And so just knowing that has allowed me to walk into very difficult situations and experience things like many of us had. Many of us have been in situations where it's unexplainable and unthinkable. And what's needed is just simply to notice and to be clear. I went to Home Depot one time when a man had had a heart attack And fortunately, a very young employee realized that instead of clustering around him and talking to him and trying to, uh, you know, everybody was trying to be involved, this person got some of that yellow tape that they put out around construction projects and said, excuse me, could everybody move back and just hold this tape and just kind of move back and give this person a chance to breathe and And so one person who was a paramedic who knew what they were doing dealt with the man with the heart attack. And everybody else then could collect themselves. So it was an example of how you don't have to be a sage. You don't have to be in uniform. You you don't have to be an authority. You can be anybody who just sees clearly that the storm is blowing and that there is a way of moving forward that is skillful. So let's just breathe for a moment. I'd like to end by just having appreciation for the storms in our life. Indeed, it is the storms that are so precious to us. It is the loneliness that leads us to being open-hearted and being compassionate and having deep, clear relationships. It is the feeling of being defeated that allows us to realize that we don't need to win. In the Tibetan tradition, it is the pain that leads to enlightenment. So let us rejoice that we have pain and that we can notice our pain. And that indeed we can find our way through it with peace and equanimity. And that we can find who we truly are as we respond. So in the 2,500-year-old tradition of ending gatherings such as this, I'd like to just suggest that the value that we have created by our gathering here today is shared through us, through our lives, with all people everywhere, with those 
difficult people that we contact in our lives, those inspiring people, with all people. And that indeed, all people can be safe from inner and outer harm. All people can be happy just as they are. All people can be healthy and strong. All people can be at ease in dealing with the world, dealing with the world of making a living, of raising families, of deciding how to move forward in every storm, in every challenge, in every effort we make in our lives. And that ultimately, that we realize for ourselves and for everybody else that all people indeed can be free every moment to be just themselves, to be all they are, to be all we share in this fantastic world. No storms today. (laughs) Enjoy your sunny summer day and your July 4th weekend. And thanks so much for being here today. It's been a great joy to be here. Great joy to be part of this community for so many wonderful years.